you have your Bibles tonight, um, open up to the Old Testament. We're going to be in the book of Psalm, right there in the middle of your Bible. Uh, Psalm 111, we're going to be talking about here tonight, here in just a few moments, we'll read that. So, living in the United States, one thing you will probably notice is that we are absolutely consumed with sports. Would you agree? I mean, you can't escape them, and they're all over people's clothes. There's emblems in every school, on the TVs and the radio. I mean, it's literally everywhere. America is absolutely obsessed with sports, and because of this obsession with sports, uh, everybody has a team, and, and everybody wants their team to win, whether it's their local school or college or professional team. People want their team to come out, out on top, right? And so... Because of that, everybody wants to hire what? The right coach. And inevitably, these coaches come in, the first thing, one of the first thing they say, one of the most coined phrases there are is, we're going to build a winning attitude here at this uh, particular school, and, and we're going to win. But what I found interesting over in all my years of watching sports is that every coach pretty much says that, but few succeed. In fact, what's interesting is that there's only a handful of teams that seem to be successful year after year after year after year. And I mean, every once in a while, there's one of those fluke seasons where some no-name team will kind of come out and win a championship. But uh, if you've ever paid attention to, say, high school football, right, if you ever look at those brackets, almost every year, it's, I mean, out of the whatever, how many teams, like the vast majority of them are the same teams. Year after year after year, same in college, pretty much for the most part, the same in professional sports, at least with some teams. And, um, and, and so how is that possible? Why is it that some teams can be so good for so long, so consistently, and, and yet some just can't ever seem to get it together when they all have the same idea, we need to build a winning attitude? I don't know, but if you were to ask the Patriots over the last 20 years, the New England Patriots, the football team, how they have been so successful, what they would tell you is three simple words. It's called the Patriot way. The Patriot way. In, in, in all their success over the last 20 years, they didn't always have the biggest and fastest or most talented team, but what they did have was an incredible work ethic. I mean, they had a determined will to win and an unshakable belief that if they simply executed their game plan, they would come out on top. And in the last 20 years, they've been in the playoffs for 18 of them. They've been in nine Super Bowls, and they won six of them. So whatever they were doing, obviously, the Patriot way worked. But I will say this. What's interesting is I was reading up on this this week is that it's, it's more than just an attitude. It's a system. They had three main focuses that made up the Patriot way. One was practice hard all the time. Second was study your opponent. And third, on game day, execute the plan. And because of their system, the simple three-part system of the Patriot way, whether you're a fan of theirs or not, they have created one of the most successful franchises in NFL history. Now, you may be sitting here right now wondering, okay, Pastor, that's interesting. I'm not even a Patriots fan. Um, But uh, what's this have to do with anything in the Bible. Well, as we're going to see here today, a winning attitude is not only essential for a football team, it's also essential when it comes to our Christian lives. And, and just like the Patriots, for instance, had a simple way to get there, a simple three-step focus, what we're going to see today is there's a pretty simple three-step focus that we can do, as we're going to see in this psalm as well, that will help us to put ourselves in a position that we too can 
focus in on the Lord and have victory in our life. You know, the, the truth is, is the Christian life is not a game. But in the Bible, it does describe it as a war. And in this war, we definitely have an opponent whose name is Satan, who has a team of his own that is trying desperately, always scheming and working hard to keep us down, always trying to keep us discouraged, always trying to keep us frustrated by doing all that he can to keep us from having spiritual victory in our lives. I mean, if you've been a Christian for very long, um, you'll understand the fight that we're in. Uh, because if you're like me, you probably know the feeling of discouragement or frustration all too well. As you look on what's happening around the world and you're in your struggle and endeavor to live for Jesus, it, it can seem at times like a losing battle. And at times you almost feel defeated because you just can't quite seem to get it right. Well, this is exactly where Satan wants us to be. In all of his schemes, he wants a Christian to be defeated. The last thing he wants the Christian to have is a winning attitude. Because the, the, the secret is this, and Satan knows it. He may be powerful, but we're on the winning team. We have more available to us, a more amazing God that he could ever hope to be, and God, that God, is on our side. So we're already on the winner's side. We, we already have victory guaranteed to us, but we have to choose as God's people to walk in it. And so the big question that I really like to kind of consider um, this evening is this, is, is how do we prevent spiritual defeat in our lives? What can we do to keep Satan from keeping us down? How do we gain this winning attitude? What, what steps do we need in our life to get there. And as we'll see today as we get into God's Word, it really all has to do with what our focus is. Thinking about this, when it comes to our lives, what are we focused on more? Are we focused on the problems in our lives and in the world, or are we focused more on the Lord? What fills our minds the most? Do we focus on the lies of Satan, or do we focus on the promises of God's Word? Do we focus on what the world says we should be, how the world defines us, or do we focus more on how God defines us? All those questions are, are huge when it comes to our life and us having a mindset of victory, a winning attitude in our lives. As we study God's Word today, we'll see that victory is absolutely possible for us if we do it God's way. So let's go ahead and read um, Psalm chapter 111, just 10 verses starting in verse 1. And it says this, Praise the Lord. I will thank the Lord with all of my heart as I meet with his godly people. How amazing are the deeds of the Lord. All who delight in him should ponder them. Everything he does reveals his glory and majesty. His righteousness never fails. He causes us to remember his wonderful works. How gracious and merciful is our Lord. He gives food to those who fear him. He, is, he always remembers his covenant. He has shown his great power to his people by giving them the lands of other nations. All he does is just and good. All his commandments are trustworthy. They're forever true to be obeyed faithfully and with integrity. He has paid a full ransom for his people. 
He has guaranteed his covenant with them forever. What a holy, awe-inspiring name he has. Fear of the Lord is the foundation of true wisdom. And all who obey his commands will grow in wisdom. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this time tonight. Lord, I pray that, God, you would move in this place. Lord, that you would take these words and just place them upon our hearts and upon our minds. God, uh, my, my voice can change nothing, but your word and your spirit can change everything. And so, God, I pray that you would take over this service. Lord, I pray that the words that are spoken would be yours, and that, God, you would move in hearts tonight, that we can be changed more into the image of Christ than when we came in. Father, we submit ourselves to you in this time and ask that you would reign in this place. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So Psalm 111 um, is a psalm that uh, most theologians believe was written by King David because it definitely seems like something that he would write. Um, King David was really considered to be the greatest king in Israel's history. And what's interesting about this particular psalm, according to Jewish tradition, this was one of the psalms, it was actually a song that the Jews would sing um, at a lot of their festivals. You know, if you know anything about the, the, the Old Testament and the way the Jews practice their, um, their, their walk with God and everything. Part of those things were religious festivals that they would have at peri- periods of time to commemorate different events. And this is one of the songs they would sing to remind themselves that God was for them, to remind themselves of the God they served, the, the wonderful things that he did for them, that they served a God that loved them, a God that was on their side, a God that was righteous and good and wise and powerful. And it just so happens that the same God they served is the same God we serve. The same God they worship, the same truths they believed are truths that can still be believed by his people who are us, who know Christ as Savior still today. Now, a question that I always ask myself when I read a passage of Scripture is, why was it written? And so I was thinking about David um, and his life and, and thinking about the man that he was, and I was thinking, why would he write these words? What, what, I mean, obviously God inspired them, but why would he write these specific things? And as I was thinking about that, and again, this is just purely a guess, but I think it's probably a, a fairly safe one, it's because as he wrote these things, it reminded him of the God he served. It encouraged him when he thought of all that God had done for Israel in the past. It, it emboldened him um, to move forward because he knew that God was on his side. It helped him to remember that, that God was good, and it reminded him that God was worthy of giving his life in service too. You see, David as a king dealt with a lot of stuff. He dealt with enemies. He dealt with people that were trying to take his throne. He dealt with family problems and stresses. He dealt with great losses and and grief. And yet, at the end of his life, he was called a man after God's own heart, one one of the heroes of the faith in the Bible. And the question that I thought about is, is how do you do it? How do you stay faithful for so long with so much that he had against him throughout his life? And and what I would say, according to this passage of Scripture, is he had a winning strategy that gave him a winning attitude, that gave him victory. And one of the things that that we see in this passage of Scripture is to think about the strategy of David. One thing David clearly did in his life is he pondered the excellencies of God. You ever seen that, that old Greek statue with the guy and that rock? The thinker? Can I tell you something? This is something that is good for us to do as God's people. And that's exactly what we see David doing here in these verses. And in verse 2, he, he, he pondered God's amazing deeds that he had done. No doubt in David's mind, he thought back to the, to the writings of Moses in the book of Genesis, how this, this just by the 
pure power of the Word of God, he, he speaks creation into existence. By, by the power of God, he raises up a people that, that led to David even being there as king over Israel. In verse 3, he pondered the glorious and majestic nature of God. And he pondered the thoughts that he is righteous in all he does. And no doubt he thought back on Israel's history and, and, and the faithfulness of God and how God showed his power time and time and time again in their history. Not only in their history, but in his own personal history throughout his life. And as he looked back on those things, he couldn't think of one thing, one thing or one time that God had failed. And so all he could say was, God, you are righteous in everything. In all your deeds and all you do, you are perfect all the time. In verse 4, it talks about how he, how he pondered God's grace and, and his mercy that he had showed to his people. And I, I'm sure that David couldn't help but think of Israel as they were wandering on in the desert, as they, as they were turning their backs on God and, and building you know, fake gods and statues to bow down and worship. And, and, and even through the judges, all those times they had turned their back on God, and, and yet God still brought them back to him. David knew of the grace and the mercy of God. I was thinking this week, I was reading the book of Ruth, and David's great-grandmother wasn't even an Israelite. She was a, a widow of one of their enemies, and yet they were, she was brought in and married this man named Boaz, and who has a son named Obed, who has a son named Jesse, and next thing you know, here's David. I mean, I'm sure those things were just wandering around in David's mind as he thought about the grace and the mercy that God has shown his people. In verse 5, he pondered God's provision and his covenantal promises to his people that he said will never fail. I'm sure he thought about it as the Israelites were walking around the desert and God sent quail and, and the manna to take care of them. I'm sure he thought about his own life when he was on the run from Saul and God always provided the entire step of the way. And as he thought about the, the covenant that God had made with his people through Abraham, centuries before this, as he looked at that pattern of how God was faithful, he, he was so sure that the words of God absolutely would never fail. He pondered how God had proven himself faithful to his people, evidenced by the land that they were living in, there in verse 6, this promised land that God gave to them. He says there in verse 6, He has shown His great power to His people by giving them the lands of other nations. That The nation that they lived in didn't belong to them. And yet God promised it to them, and God conquered the people essentially for them, and they went and take the land. And the, and the land they were living in was part of this covenant, part of God's promise, and, and God had proven Himself faithful once again. In verse 7, He pondered God's words and commandments. And what does He say there? They are just and good. Always trustworthy. You know, all he had at the time really were probably the first, what are we call the five, five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. They didn't have all the rest of them. I mean, he was writing the Psalms. You know, he didn't have the New Testament. And yet he looked at God's law and he looked at those just few books of the Bible and all those commandments that were in there. He says they're trustworthy. They're true. His words never Fail so trustworthy, verse 8 talks about that he pondered the fact that his word will never fail even into eternity. They're true forever, faithfully to be obeyed. God's word literally will never fail all the way into eternity. In verse 9, he pondered that his whole, this holy and awe-inspiring God loves his people so much that he paid a hefty ransom 
for their freedom. And you know, I don't even think David realized what he was writing here. Because it wasn't until centuries later that, that Jesus came and, and, and died on that cross and gave them the true freedom that he was writing about here. And then as he gets down to verse 10, as he thinks of all these things, he, he ponders who this God is and all that God has done and all he can say is God is to be feared. He is to be revered above all things because in him is true wisdom. He defines wisdom. His commandments, if we follow them, will grow in wisdom. And so he thinks about all of these sayings, and we see David in these just begin to ponder all of these truths. And here's what it does. It draws him into praise. As he thinks about who God is and all that God has done and all the ways that God has shown his faithfulness to his people throughout the years, all the ways that God has shown his faithfulness to him as an individual throughout the years, he has the most natural response possible, which was to praise the Lord. And that's the second part of, I believe, his strategy is David praised God for those truths that he had pondered. In verse 1, that's the way he starts us out. It's so many of his psalms start out this way. that just say, praise the Lord. It's just like he just said, we need to praise the Lord. God is so worthy of it. He starts this passage with it. He ends this passage with it. Praise him forever. And there's no doubt from what we read in the Bible that Dave had, David had a practice of praising and singing to God. 2 Samuel chapter 6, we see this picture of David in front of all his people dancing and praising God. Second Samuel chapter 22 and verse 1 says, David sang a song to the Lord on the day the Lord rescued him from all of his enemies and from Saul. And for the next 50 verses, it's this entire song about David singing the praises of God for all the amazing things that he had done and the way he had shown his faithfulness. You know, over the 150 chapters of the book of Psalm, David wrote at least half of them. I mean, David literally, he practiced what he preached. He praised his God. Why? Because he knew that there was power in praising the Lord. Because as he, when he wrote these things, and then they would sing these things, as he would sing these things, it reminded him of who God was. It reminded him of what God had done. It reminded him that there was nothing that God could not do. And the big thing was that his praise reminded them that no matter what he faced, his God, who had proven himself faithful to his people over and over again, could be counted on to have his back, no matter what. He was going to provide for him even in the worst of situations. God had his back, and God had proven it over and over again. And, and this praises reminded David of this. So as he pondered the excellencies of God, he responds in praise, which then leads him to this final step of his pattern, I believe, for victory. And in verse 10, it talks about how he looked at God, and after he pondered all of these things, he said, God is to be feared. Do we look at God like that? Now, what's interesting about this word is it does mean Fear. Now, to the unbeliever, it's a different kind of fear. In, in the presence of the holiness and might of God, a person who does not belong to him will, if they came in contact with him, would run in fear. But the fear he's talking about is a fear that drives us to his feet. It's a holy wonder and awe and reverence as we consider who God is and all that God has done. It wants us to make us come and bow before him. And what we see David do is he positions himself rightly before God. 
David understood that God was to be revered, to be worshipped as Lord and King over his life. David understood that God gave him his commands not to restrict his people. He gave them for the good of his people. David understood that the only way he could get through life victoriously was to be absolutely dependent upon the grace and power of God that was leading him. This was David's strategy, and we see it. Because of these things, because of his attitude before God, when it came to David's life, the truth was there was no giant too big, no army too great, no foe too mighty that could defeat him. There there was nothing in his life that he faced that he didn't think he could conquer because he knew that he was at the feet of the one that had his back. Because his faithful God that loved him with an everlasting love was on his side. No matter what he went through in his life, he knew his needs would be met because he was in the right hands. He knew that God could always be trusted because God had always proven himself faithful. And if God was for him, who could ever stand against him? That was a simple strategy that we see in this passage of Scripture. When something would come up, he'd stop and ponder. I, I, just, I believe he would. He would just stop and ponder all the ways of God. After he got that, he'd get more excited and, and more excited. Next thing you know, he was singing and praising the Lord, and, 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 and that would remind him that, man, I've got to get back at my Savior's feet. If I'm going to have victory in whatever it is that I'm facing, I've got to get back at his feet. That's the winning attitude. That's the pattern of victory that he had, and it still works today. That pattern, if we will follow that in our life, will set us on a winning path in our lives. See, like David, we need to take time in our lives to ponder the excellencies of God. You know, I love verse, the way verse 2 says here. It says, How amazing are the deeds of the Lord, all who delight on in him. What It says what? Should ponder him. In fact, that's so true in verse 4. It says that God causes us to remember his wonderful works. Have you ever just stopped and asked yourself the simple question, why were all the stories in the Bible and all these incredible accounts of God's power recorded? You think maybe it was for our good? You think maybe it was so that we could read them and just marvel and wonder at the awesomeness of the power of God? Marvel and wonder about how God loves his people, how faithful God is to his people? It's pretty amazing. I mean, for instance, if we're going to ponder the Word of God. Let's just ponder the Word of God for a few moments here tonight and see what it does in your heart. For instance, let's start and let's ponder for a few moments some verses that declare God for who He is, this amazing, sovereign, creator God that is ruler over all, starting with the very first verse in the Bible, in the beginning, God. Isn't there something discomforting about that? Before one cell was ever created, before the first stars were in the sky, before any angel was ever there, God was always there. And can I tell you something? The Bible says that God will always be there. He always was and he always will be there. There was never a time where God was not and there never will be a time when God won't be. (laughs) That's the God that we serve. Psalm 24 verses 1 and 2 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Listen, Satan may think he's the Lord G God of this world, but who's the one really in charge? The big man. Our God who is in heaven upon his throne. The Lord is his in everything, and that the world and all of its people belong to him. For he laid the earth's foundation on the seas and built it on the ocean depths. 
Truly, as Psalm 147 and verse 5 says, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has absolutely no limit. That's our God. And you look down there at verse 10, talk about the fear of the Lord, the foundation of wisdom. He defines wisdom. There is no wisdom outside of God. That's our God. That's the one we serve. Psalm 95 and verse 3, For the Lord is a great God, the great King above all gods. Second Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 6, O Lord, God of our ancestors, you alone are the God who is in heaven. You are ruler of all the kingdoms of the earth. You are powerful and mighty. No one can stand against you. I love those verses. Because that's our God. And you see, when we ponder those truths, no matter how stressful this world gets or how hopeless this world seems to be these days, we can be reminded that our God is king and there is nothing that he can't do. The powers of this world could never hold a candle to our God. All the armies of the world combined could never defeat him. Even Satan as an entire entourage has no hope against the power of simply the word of God. And guess whose side he's on? If you know Christ is on your side, he's on my side. Now these are some amazing verses to think about, but, but how about we think about this? He's not just some distant God in heaven. He's a God who is faithful to his people. He's a God who, he, he, he isn't just faithful because, I mean, he is faithful, but he shows and he proves himself over and over and over, and he has all throughout history. I mean, just think about some of the amazing things that we can read in Scripture. How God made the impossible possible. For his people. I mean, you think about Abraham and Sarah. God promises them that they're going to have this, this son that's going to be this chosen seed that we're going to bring this nation about. And he's 100 years old. She's 90 years old. Where's that? And next thing you know, at 100 years old and 90 years old, Sarah has this baby. God made the impossible become possible. Some of the stuff he alludes to in, this, in, in Psalm 111 speaks of Israel's history and and think about the impossible situation that Israel was in when they were slaves in Egypt to the most powerful nation on earth at the time. And yet, God did the impossible by sending plagues and sending a deliverer to get them out, to get them to the Red Sea. What do we do? God does the impossible. He splits the seas. They walk right on through. They get to the other side. The army's coming. What's he do? Kills them all. He did the impossible for his people. He proved himself faithful again and again and again. How about when the Israelites went into the promised land? They get to Jericho, this massive city with walls so wide that chariots could go around the top of this thing. How in the world are we ever going to penetrate this city? And God said, just watch what I do. Here's all you got to do. Just walk around the city a few times. Do it for a few days. That seventh day, walk around seven times, then shout real loud and see what I do. The walls come tumbling down. They defeat that city. They go into the promised land against giants, against peoples far greater than they could ever be in themselves. And yet, guess what they had on their side? God was on their side. You know how many stories are in the Old Testament there when they took the promised land that the, that the angel of God would go up before them and the entire armies laid dead before they ever even got there? Never even had to lift a sword? God went before them. Or how about Gideon who took 300 men against an army of 120,000 Midianites? Yeah, they did a lot. They broke some pots and yelled, they yelled real loud. <laughs> they barely had to lift a sword and the entire army was, was toast. 
God proves his faithfulness over and over and over and over again. I guarantee you, David thought about these things. And how could David forget about one of the most amazing stories in all the Bible when he was a teenage boy going out to war against this giant, nine, ten feet tall, whatever he was, this huge, massive warrior for the Philistines. And yet, listen to what David says in 1 Samuel 17, verses 47 through 45. David replies to this Philistine giant, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head, and then I will give you the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. How do you think David was able to say that? Because he'd pondered the greatness and the excellencies of God. He was a man who was in worship to the Lord. And he was a man who was at the feet of God. And he gave all the credit to God. He wouldn't have stood against the giant three times his size. He says, you ain't got nothing on me because I got him. And you're going down. And down he went. How about those three Hebrew teenagers that were thrown in the name of Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace? Man, God did the impossible, didn't he? Not only did they not burn up, they came out, they didn't smell like smoke. How about Daniel? Chucked into the den of lions. Should have been human sushi, not even a scratch on him when he came out. God made the impossible possible for his people, and he has done it over and over and over and over again all throughout the Bible where we read over and over and over again of all that God has done for so many people throughout history. But can I tell you something? If we stopped there, we would stop too quick. Because let's ponder for a moment what God has done for you and for me through His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us we were sinners in desperate need of a Savior. Absolutely without hope whatsoever to ever have a relationship restored with God. And so in our hopeless state, God sends His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to come to this earth as a human baby. He grows, He lives a perfect, sinless life. He goes to a cross and dies for who? Not for His sins, for yours and for mine. He was buried three days later. He rose again for who? For who? For us. He did it all for you and me so that we could have an opportunity to confess to him as Lord and Savior, receiving him as our Lord and Savior, receiving the forgiveness of our sins, and being made right with our Heavenly Father. Let's ponder that for a few moments. Your hope of eternity is because of what Jesus has done for you. And when he did that, he didn't just save us a little bit, he saved us completely. And we're not a bunch of outsiders. John 1.12 says that he has made us his own children, children of the living God. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5 tells us that we have been adopted into God's own family. We belong to him. How amazing is that? And so now that we belong to him, well, what does the Bible say about us who belong to him? Well, I mean, boy, if we are children of God, that means we have some pure and precious promises to us, don't we? I mean, if we are children of God, I mean, that tells me that we have some, some, some power available to us as his people. You know what the Bible says? Exactly that. I mean, for instance, let's just ponder for a few moments what we have available to us as children of God. One thing we have is his presence with us continually. One, he dwells in us. 
The Bible says we are the temple of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 3.16. I love Psalm 118. In verse 6 and 7 it says, The Lord is with me, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? I like that. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I look in triumph at my enemies. That is a person who wrote that. Probably David. I didn't look back and see who wrote that. Most likely David, but he looked out, whoever that was, he looked out on that enemy army and he says, you've already lost. Mere mortals. I got God on my side. I love Deuteronomy 31 and verse 8. This is Moses speaking to the nation of Israel before they're going into the promised land. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged for the Lord will personally go ahead of you. He will be with you. He would neither fail you nor abandon you. Can I tell you something? The same promise to them is the same promise we have. He's for us, not against us. We are his people. We are his children. We can hold on to the precious promises of God. Not only is his presence with us, but his power is with us. Because the Spirit of the living God lives within us, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond anything that we could ask or think, according to his power that works within us. What can we not do? Nothing. We have all the wisdom we could possibly ever need, as verse 10 talks about. Psalm 32 and verse 8 says, The Lord, Lord says this, I will guide you along the best way for your life. I, would, I, will, I will advise you and watch over you. Proverbs 2, 6, For the Lord grants wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. James 1, 5, If you need wisdom, ask your generous God, and he will give it to you. And he goes on to say he's, he's not going to despise you for asking. He wants you to come to him and ask for wisdom. Why? Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He wants us to come to him and ask. It's the desire of our lives. And if those promises aren't good enough for those of us who are God's people, let's look at the greatest one of all. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth him in him, what? Shall have what? Say it out. Come on. Shall have what? Everlasting life. How about that for a promise of God? How about that for being something that's available to us as his people? We can't die. I mean, you get it? This body may shut off, but we're going to pass from one existence to the next without even a second blinking. Because the same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead, Romans 8, 11, dwells in us. And that Spirit lives in us. What's going to happen to our mortal bodies? Just like Christ. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Are you sure? Well, how about this for just the cherry on top of the sweet Sunday we're enjoying right now? 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance, listen, that can never perish, never spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Ponder those things for a while. Doesn't, as you think about that, I mean, doesn't it just do do something inside of you? Like, when when I think about those things, I mean, I just get excited inside. It, It brings me to this place of awe and wonder. And I tell you, right now, you know what I want to do? I want to start singing. 
And I'm not lying to you. I mean, I'm serious. I mean, there, there's something about thinking about these truths about God that makes us want to respond in praise. And we should, because that's the second part of David's strategy. Is it good enough just to ponder those things? We need to start praising him for those things. There's something about praise that's pretty amazing. Now, why do we praise God for these truths? I mean, no doubt because he deserves to be. The reason for our praise is because God has earned it simply for who he is. I mean, take away everything that he's done just simply for who he is. He deserves to be praised. I love what Charles Spurgeon, the, the old preacher from days past, said. He, he says this, Doth not all nature around me praise God? If I were silent, I should be an exception to the universe. Doth not the thunder praise him as it rolls like drums in the march of the God of armies? Do not the mountains praise him when the woods upon their summits wave in adoration? Doth not the lightning write his name in the letters of fire? Hath not the whole earth a voice? And shall I, can I possibly keep silent? God deserves our praise. As 1 Chronicles 16 and verse 9 says, it says, Sing to him, yes, sing his praises. Tell everyone about his wonderful deeds. I love Hebrews 13 and verse 15. It says, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. There is power in praise. What is praise? It's defined like this, to, to commend or to applaud, to exalt in words or song, to magnify, to glorify an account of perfections or excellent works, to express gratitude for personal favors. Praise essentially is an intentional outward expression of one's mouth as a person vocalizes the reasons for their praise. And we have many, don't we? We have endless reasons to be praising God. But can I tell you something? Just because God deserves it is not the only reason we should do it. In, in fact, you realize that praise is a gift? That God gave us music and, and the songs because he knew we needed it. He didn't do it for just selfish reasons. He, he did it for our benefit. See, there's something about praising God that, that, that has the power to lift a weary soul. There's something that happens when you start singing God's praises that just, it's just amazing what happens. I mean, in your worst, darkest moment, it can, it can put a smile on your face. It has the power to mend a broken heart. It has, it has the power to, to refocus a distracted mind. It, it has the power to rejo- re- restore our, our, our joy and our peace. It has the power to, to get us through this broken world. Praising God has amazing power. One person said this, when you enter God's presence with praise, he enters your circumstances with power. I love that. I love this quote by this man named Terry Law. It says, God shows up in his fullness when you praise him in your emptiness because that is when you truly have room for him. I mean, when we get to the most awful place in life, the most frustrating day, the the sorrow and the grief that we feel, if we choose to praise God in those moments, he meets us there and he'll lift us up. Praise is amazing. The great preacher Harry Ironside once said, we would worry less if we praised more. Thanksgiving is the enemy of discontent and dissatisfaction. 
Praise is powerful. Why? I mean, think about when we sing songs of praise. I mean, there's a reason. He says, like, I love in verse 1 there, I will thank the Lord with all my heart as I meet with his godly people. While he was in the presence of people, there's power praising God together. Why? Think about the songs that we sing. Don't they remind us of who God is? Just like these verses say that we serve a glorious, majestic, holy, righteous, ever-wise, unfailing God whose power and might could never be grasped. We sing songs like this for a reason because it encourages us, it reminds us of the God that we serve. It also reassures us of who we are. We sing songs about what God has done for us personally. We sing songs that remind us that we're his children, that we're loved beyond measure, that he's on our side, that he is for us and not against us. We sing songs about his promises that will never fail. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 20, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ, and so through his amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. We can just say amen to the promises of God before they ever get here because they are yes in Christ. And you know what else it does? It redirects our minds from the stresses of this life to the goodness of God. If we begin to praise God, we think about who he is, we think about how we, what he has done for us, the natural thing it does, it redirects our minds to his glory. And the, the worries and the stresses of this life begin to fade. We begin to see this world through his eyes. I love Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Listen to what this says. It says, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God. Because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice, too, when we run even into problems and trials, for we know that they help us to develop endurance, and endurance develops strength and character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Spirit to fill our hearts with love. See, when we praise God and think about it, that's where our mind goes. The worries of this world begin to fade because all we can see is our Lord. And in that moment, we will know that we are in the right hands. That's step two. But this winning strategy doesn't stop at step two. It has to require step three. Like David, we need to position ourselves rightly before the Lord in submission and surrender each and every single day of our lives because he is our Lord and he is our King. God is a God that deserves to be feared and revered in our lives. And see, like David, if we can come to an understanding that for all God has done, for who he is, he deserves to be revered, he deserves to be worshipped as Lord and King of our life, if we can come to the same trust in God's word and commands like David did and understand that, that God's word is not here to restrict us. It's here to empower us. God's word is, is good because God's word is here to lead our lives to victory, to keep us from doing things that are going to harm us. It's here to help us live a life that brings him glory. If we can become like David and understand that the only way that we can do this is by grabbing onto the feet of our Lord, 
figuratively, spiritually, by every single day, saying, you are my king. I am your servant today. I'm going to live for you. You have to live through me or else victory can't happen. That's the position that we have to be in as God's people. If we can get there, victory is ours. It's ours. When we get there, it's impossible for life to get us down. Because when we're focused on the praises of God, the problems of this world go away. They may still be there, but they begin to fade in the presence of our mighty God. We don't have to worry about frustration or fear or anger or anxiety because when we have God, we have all that we need. And the problems of this world no longer can destroy us. We'll be full of joy and peace because in that moment, the God of peace will be living through us. When we live in full submission to God as king, we will know in that moment that we are secure because our faithful God that loves us with an everlasting love, we will know in that moment is on our side. No matter what what we face, no matter what we need, guess what? We know we're in the right hands. We will know that if our God is for us, there's nobody that could stand against us. Friend, that's the winning strategy. It worked for David. It'll work for us. You know, when you think about David in closing here, how did he become the man that he did? Think about his beginnings. The youngest son, nothing but a shepherd, out in the field. And yet he became the greatest king in Israel's history. A general, a giant slayer, a man who wrote a whole book of God's word almost. How'd he get there? It wasn't because he was so great. It wasn't because he was so powerful. It wasn't because he was so mighty. It's because he was surrendered to the one that was. And no matter what he faced in his life, he knew he could keep going because God was on his side. One man named Joel. I can't even pronounce his last name, Wakazaji or something like that. But I, I love his quote. He says, winning is an attitude. You take the good with the bad and you keep on going. It gets hard, you get tired, sometimes you get burnt out, but you keep going anyways because you can. And you know why we can? Because we serve an amazing God. The same God David prays is the same God we serve. The same God that led David is the same God who will lead us. The same God that gave David victory is the same God who will give us victory. And if we can walk with that understanding and that attitude, friends, we can walk in victory with the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day, for who you are, for your word. We thank you, God, for this time and just that, that Lord, we, we can be here in this place together to be encouraged, to be strengthened, to, to lift praises to your name, God, as you are so deserving of, as we talked about tonight. And, and God, I, Lord, the truth is, Father, it's, this life is hard. It is full of difficulties. It is full of sorrow, and it is full of struggles. And, but, Lord, God, they don't have to defeat us. God, these schemes of Satan don't have to get us down. They don't have to get us defeated and frustrated because we have you. God, so as we, as we leave this place tonight, as we walk through these next days, this next week, these next months, these next years, God, let us never forget, God, that we have a game plan that can lead us to victory. 
Whenever we're down, God, give us the strength just to think upon who you are and all that you've done. Let us respond in praise and get back to where we need to be, which is at your feet. And through that, God, I pray that you would reign in us, reign through us, and do mighty things, Father, through your people. Heavenly Father, we love you, we praise you, we thank you. In Jesus' mighty, precious name, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Let me close.